My name is Thomas, if we have not met, and it is a joy to be with you all, especially here on Veterans Day weekend. We had a great uh, lunch done by the Owens family to celebrate and honor our veterans on the Boulder campus yesterday. For those who were involved, I hope you felt blessed and loved. We are so thankful for those in this church who are connected with families that serve and create a, a country that allows us to do what we're going to do today which is the freedom of worship and to be able to open up our scriptures. And so before we do that, will you just pray with me? Pray that God would bless the families that are really tuned into this weekend, have emotional impacts of what Veterans Day brings, and then ask God to, to open your eyes and your ears today to hear from him specifically. Lord, we are so thankful to live here in the state that allows us to gather in the freedom of assembly to worship you, to have our kids worship you, to sing your praises, to study your words, to be built up as men and women who follow after Jesus Christ. We thank you for the service and the sacrifice that many have given to give us this gift. And so Lord, would you bless those families this weekend that are remembering and celebrating that have extended family sons and daughters serving and would you be with us this morning as we open up your word in the story of Exodus? Would you help us answer some questions today of what it is to follow you and to love you and treasure you? And so open up our eyes and our ears personally. Let every single person in this room hear from you, Lord, as their teacher this morning. It's in your name, Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. All right, here's the question I want to start off by asking. And it's a fun question. The question is this, what is your dream? Like if you could have anything you wanted with whomever you wanted, wherever you wanted it, what would that look like? No constraints, you could move forward in time, you could move back in time. We have to answer those three things. If you could be wherever you wanted, where would you want to be? If you're older and you think, man, I just wish I could go back to my teens. I want to relive the Uncle Rico glory days of high school. Or maybe you are a teenager thinking, I just really want to be older. I want to be an adult. Or you're an adult right now wanting to be retired. Where would you want to be in life? No constraints. You can move forward or backwards. The question comes, this week I was talking to my son, Matthew, who's five. And after one of those days that was just really, really long, I mean, we got up super early. I left before anyone was awake. I had early morning appointments. Then just the work of the office seemed to be just a lot of things going on and doing all the tasks that were in my email box, getting those all accomplished, and then getting home in the evening. And it's one of those nights where you kind of hand off responsibilities and people are coming and going and the batons are being handed off and you're getting kids to different activities and then you're rushing home and you're cooking dinner, everyone's being fed, and then you get them in the showers and the baths, and you get them bathed and you get them into their beds and you're reading the stories and then you're praying with them. And Matthew says to me, Dada, I can't wait to be an adult and do whatever I want. I thought, yeah, buddy, it's something like that. It's something like that. So where would you want to live? What age would you want to be? And the question is, what would you want to have? I mean, you're dreaming towards something. What do you want to own? Maybe it's like a a beach house or a mountain house, a vacation home. You want a boat. I mean, what is it that you want to have when you're living where you want to be living? And then here's another question. Don't answer this out loud because this, this could get you in trouble. Who would be there? 
who would be there in this dream where you're living with all the cool stuff that you own? Who would it be? Would, would you be married? Would you not be married? Would, would you have a family? Would you not have a family? Would your friends be there? Would your mom and dad be there? Would your siblings be there? Who would be there in this dream scenario of you get everything that you want, you're living where you want to be, and all the people that you want are there? Minus one thing. Your dream is realized, except God did not go with you there. Would you still want your dream if God was not there with you? That's the only question I have today. And we could end right now, honestly. Would you want your dream realized, living where you are, with all the things what you want, with who you want to be there, except God's not there with you. We could say it this way. Would you want the promised land if God wasn't going with you? Now, some of you in the room are going, hold on, time out. If God's not going to give me what I want, then why would I want God? If God's not going to give me what I want, I mean, the, the, the health I want or the security that I want or the possessions that I want or the position that I want, if I don't get those things from God, then why would I want God? I mean, isn't that what he's supposed to do? Would you want the promised land if God didn't go up with you? That's the question that we're gonna be looking at that Israel's faced with here in Exodus 33. And if, if you've been out from the series for a while or this is your first Sunday, let me just catch us up on what we're doing. We've been studying the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, which is God's historical account of what God was doing in freeing his people Israel from a place of bondage and slavery to bring them to a place of promise, a place of promise that he had promised generations beforehand that he would do for his people. And as they've been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years, it is God who takes the initiative to see and to hear and to know their suffering and then to come down and be present with his people. And in his presence, he displays his power and his, his protection. He, he shows his provision of his people. And he does this all by calling a man named Moses. And Moses was this, this mighty man. We saw that he had 40 years of Ivy League military training in Egypt, the cream of the creme. And then he had 40 years of on-the-streets training in Midian, in the wilderness. And God called him on a mountain in Horeb. And he said, Moses, I have seen the affliction of my people, and I'm going to come be present with them, and I'm going to just do awesome deeds and you're going to be my chosen instrument that I'm going to use to bring my people out of slavery and bondage and bring them to this place of promise. And Moses says, nah, we're not doing that. I mean, at least I'm not doing that. Find somebody else. I, I don't speak well enough. I'm too nervous. They're not going to believe me. He gives all the excuses. And do you remember what God reassured Moses with? This was all the way back in Exodus 3. God said, Moses, 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 you're not going to be able to do this because of your own strength, because of your own cleverness, because of your own skills. But, but take heart. The reason you're going to be able to do this is because I'm going with you, is what he tells Moses. I will be present with you all along the way. You'll never be alone. I'll always be with you. And so as Moses goes back to Egypt and he speaks to the Israelites, God's with him. As he speaks to Pharaoh, God's with him. As he displays these miraculous signs, God is with him. And as they leave 
Egypt. God is with them. He's guarding them and guiding them in the front and guarding them in the, in the rear. And he leads them through this salvation episode of the sea. God is with them by day and by night. He brings them in the wilderness. He provides for all their needs. He protects them. He brings them to the same mountain that he commissioned Moses on and fulfills on a promise that he gave Moses. He said, you know that I will be faithful to be with you when you know this. When we leave Egypt, I will bring you back to this same place. And God has done that. And at this place of Horeb, this Mount Sinai, we've seen the last few weeks where there's like this wedding ceremony of sorts that happens where God gives his vows of how he will be faithful and loving and care for these people if they will vow back that there are faithfulness and obedience to him as his children and people. And so both take this vow, and we've seen like the Ten Commandments and others, the Ten Sayings of what the people of God are vowing towards and what God is vowing. And there this, there's this marriage ceremony. And then as we saw last week, there's a tragedy. That as Moses goes up to receive these ten statements, the people quickly turn aside. And they do the very thing that God said not to do. The first two things, God said, don't have any other gods before me. And one of the people say, well, build us gods, Aaron. We don't know what happened to Moses. He's been up there for about a week or so or a couple weeks. And we're scared and we need, we need gods and we need to see them visibly. And they take all their jewelry off, all their ornaments off themselves. And they, they build a calf, an idol. And God tells Moses, these people have caused a great sin in their life. Caused a great sin. And I am angry with them. And God is reminded of, of, by Moses of his relenting love and how he should relent from destroying these people and starting all over again with Moses. And this great sin that they've committed is like, it's like we said, a married couple were on their honeymoon and one of the spouses had an affair. That was the quickness of, of people of Israel turning away from God and the vows that they had made. And we said, you wouldn't fault the spouse for the jealousy that they would feel. And that's how God's feeling towards his people. And now we see kind of the conclusion of that where God begins to speak to Moses about some of the consequences that, that maybe would, would come to be because these people have caused this great sin. Now, when we talk about the word sin, sin seems like this really religious, spiritual world word. It's not really a, originally a spiritual word. It's, it's originally an archer's term. Archer's like bow and arrow, Robin Hood kind of term. And the sin is simply this, that as an archer looks at the target, whatever the target is, if it's the perfect center of the bullseye, any arrow that strikes the target in any other place and misses its mark is the archer's term, sin. And so it's picked up here as we talk about sin is God has a mark that we would live towards and any of the ways that we live that are missing that mark, whether it's the things that we shouldn't be doing or the things that we should be doing that we're not doing, is an archer's term, sin. It's missing the mark that God has for us. And so there's this great sin that comes into the camp. And here Israel's faced with this question. Would we still want to go from this place up to the promised land if God wasn't going with us? So grab your Bibles. Go to Exodus 33. The God who has been with them every step of the way is now addressing their missing of the mark. Chapter 33, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are 
great-great-grandparents and great-grandparents and grandparents, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. This is what happens. God says, okay, I, I will always be faithful to my vows. And I told Abraham long ago that I would bring his people to a place of promise. And that I would actually remove all of their enemies from this land. So they wouldn't have any threat of enemies. They wouldn't have to guard their borders. And, you know, I'll have these military forces. I would bring them to this place without any enemies, without any adversaries, no one to threaten their livelihood. And I'm going to bring them to a good land, a fertile land where they can build homes, they can create industries, that they can have families, and they would love life. And here's the thing. I know you have this great sin against me, but I will still, even though you weren't faithful to the vows, I will still be faithful to mine. And I will bring you to this land, and I will remove all those enemies, and you can have it all. I'm just not going with you. I'm just, I'm just not going to go up with you. I'll send another messenger to lead you along the way. And Israel says, this is a disastrous word. This is disastrous. Why would we want the promised land if God wasn't going up with us? Moses, the leader of the people, flip over to 3315, puts it so well right here. He says, and he said to him, this is to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? The only thing that matters is that you're with us. I love what Moses says. If you're not going with me, don't lead us from this place. I want the desert with God instead of the promised land without him. And that's Israel's heart as well. We do not want to leave here if God's not going up with us. How about you? Would you leave? There's the dream. I mean, he's going to give it to us anyway. We get all the things we want. We're going to be where we want. We're going to be with our families. I mean, so he's not going with us, but he's giving us someone to lead us there. Let's go. The dream is almost realized. But God's not going with us. Would you want the desert with God or the promised land without him. Jesus said, the things that your heart treasures reveals your heart's affections. 
And so if, if you were one of the people that says, give me the promised land, it's okay that God's not going with me. What does that reveal about our hearts? Is that we love God's things more than God himself. But Moses' heart, Israel's heart, I think is right here. The thing that they treasure, they're showing, that they treasure truly is God himself. I want the desert with God, not the promised land without him. How about you? Do you want the 1,200 square foot old apartment with like the 88 gold accord? With God. I mean, you know his presence with you. You delight in him. You sense him with you. He is teaching you the sufficiency of his grace. Or would you say, man, I'd take the bigger house, the nicer car, the friendlier people, all that. And if God didn't come, that's all right. This is what they're wrestling with. And anyone in the room today or Israel that day who says, give me the promised land, it's okay that he's not going, has been missing who he is. Remember this whole series, what we've been doing? This whole series was saying, let's find out who God is. Not as we imagine him to be or think him up to be, but as he truly is, as he has revealed himself to be. That the more and more our vision of God can get bigger and bigger. It's like, wow, that's God? Are you serious? He's that good? As our vision of God grows bigger and bigger, our trust in God will grow deeper and deeper. And so anyone here that says, let's go to promised land without God, has missed who God is. And so Moses says, this is chapter 33, I want to see you, God. I mean, I know you've been with me. I've seen parts of what you've been doing, but I want to see something uniquely distinct. I want to see your glory. That's what he says. I want to see your glory. I want to be encouraged by who you are. When we think of the word glory, we want to think of like the Olympics and the opening night as the host country welcomes in the world in all of its glory and spectacle and fame. That's what Moses is looking for. It says that Moses has met with God in this tent of meeting and spoken with God, but he says, I want to see something more of you. I want my vision of who you are to grow. So show me your glory. And God says, Moses, I, I can't show you my glory. It would consume you. But I will let my goodness pass by. Check out verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you, that's to be in his midst, have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. When he says, I know you by name, means I call you friend. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. That's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to let you see my glory because it's too much. But I'll let my goodness pass before you. And you know what God's goodness is? It's God himself. God's goodness is God himself. And so he takes Moses in this kind of unusual way. He hides them in the cleft of a rock on a mountain. And in his hand, he shields him from his glory that would consume him. And he allows his goodness to pass before Moses to encourage him. And he's going to proclaim his name, who he is to Moses. And so what we see here in verse 7, chapter 34, actually verse 6 of 34, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, that's generations, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, 
That's how he proclaims his name, that he opens up. You want to know who God is? Why you don't want the promised land without God is you'd miss out on this. You'd miss out on the one who brings mercy and grace, who's slow to anger, who doesn't just get all uptight and just wipe you away when you mess up. He loves you too much. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. He's abounding in steadfast love. It doesn't mean that you have to like convince him to give it to you or like wring it out of a dry rag. No, it just flows from him. It overflows from him. All he's marked by is this abounding love for his people. He's abounding in love and, and he's faithful. Everything that he's ever said he would do, he's faithful to accomplish. Moses has a prayer life in here that's one to model ours after where Moses is always praying back the promises of God to God. He's not saying, God, would you really do this? I don't know if you're going to do this for me, but he prays back the promises of God. You said you would give us this land. You said you would be with us. You said you would go with us. These are your people, and God is always having to answer those prayers. Do you know why? Because he's always faithful to the things he's promised. That's who he is. That's his faithfulness. And then it goes on that he's going to keep steadfast love to thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin that our God desires. He loves to forgive. Anyone who has ever missed the mark, God delights and loves to forgive those sins. That's who he is. There's a comma there, not a period. And so he goes on and he says this, but who will be by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children, to the third and fourth generations. The apple's not going to fall far from the tree. The way that we parent often affects our children and often infects them with the same behaviors and hearts. But the overwhelming sense here is, yeah, third and fourth generation where sins are affecting future generations. But God is kind to thousands of generations. What do you see? This picture of God and how great and glorious he is. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and he worshiped. And he said, I now, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. So Moses prays back to God what God just revealed to him. Lord, you say you love to forgive iniquity. Let's admit, we're a stiff-necked people. I mean, we're ornery. We're ornery. And we don't follow you. We don't do the things that you call us to do. You're faithful to your vows. and Man, I'm breaking vows left and right. But God, would you do what you love to do and pardon our iniquity and go with us as our God? And God's response is yes. And so the following of the chapter is God renewing the covenant. The covenant that was broken with Israel, God now reestablishes, renews again because he is faithful, abounding in love, loving to pardon iniquity and sin. But here's the question. If that's who God is, that he loves to pardon, but he's not going to clear the guilty, how do you know? Am I one of the guilty that he's not going to forgive? Or am I one of the people that he's willing to pardon and forgive? How do you know if God's going to be the God who doesn't clear the guilty or if he pardons your sin? Well, it's right in here in the text. And I think it's best illustrated by a prophet. 
It's right here in the text that it's actually Moses who comes in. It's the word repent. And repent just simply means this, to rethink the way you're living and return to God. That you'd rethink the way you're living, the direction you're living, and say, God, I actually want to live for you. I, I want to direct my life towards you. I re- I've rethought my life, and the things that I thought were worthy are not worthy compared to knowing you, and so I'm, I'm pursuing you. And the prophets pick up on this idea of this is who God is, and this is how he's calling Israel often, often to repent and return, to rethink the way they've been living and return to God. And the prophets, Joel, speak of this. Jonah speaks of this. And I want to look at Jonah because I think Jonah's a familiar enough story that we can just kind of jump into, get what we need to get, and then come back to Exodus. So Jonah is the story of Jonah and the big fish, Jonah and the whale, right? Many people in the room know this, where there's a, there's a country called Nineveh, and Nineveh is an oppressor to Israel. I mean, they abuse Israel. They, have, they assault Israel all the time. They're threatening Israel. I mean, it's like, almost like ISIS to, to Israel. And God calls this man named Jonah and says, Jonah, you need to go to Nineveh, the people that are causing all this pain and anguish in your life, the people that you probably hate, and I need you to tell them to repent, to rethink the way they're living and return to God, or I'm going to wipe them out. And Jonah flees to a place called Tarshish. And we often think that Jonah's scared, but Jonah's not scared. Jonah knows who God is. Jonah has a dream for his own life of where he wants to be and who he wants to be there with. And so Jonah hops on this boat to Tarshish. God, through a series of events, brings him actually to the, shore of Tar- or to the shores of Nineveh to do what God has asked him to do. And there Jonah goes up and he preaches this. You have been living in wickedness. I mean, abusing these people. You have been afflicting these people. You have been harming these people. God says, if you won't rethink, if you won't repent and come back to him and come to him for maybe the first time, then he's going to wipe you out. And you know what Nineveh does? They repent. They say, God, we blew this. We, we are so wrong. We are sorry for the hurt that we have given. We, we, would you please forgive us? And you know what God does? He smites him off the planet. No, he doesn't do that. Come on. He does not do that. He actually relinquishes. He says that he relinquishes what he was going to do if they didn't repent. And God forgives them. Why? He loves to pardon sinners. He loves it. And how does Jonah respond? He's mad. Jonah's ticked. He's one of the people that has been offended. And so we catch Jonah in chapter 4, and he's sitting there after Nineveh has, has come back to the Lord, and the Lord has forgiven them. He says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. That's how Jonah 4, 1 opens. And 2, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are gracious God. And merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. I knew that if I showed up here and their hearts changed, that you would forgive them. And I hate them. Like the dream I have of life is with them out of this world. And I knew, God, you love them, and you care for them, and you would love to pardon them. And I'm mad. This is who God is, that he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving, loving to pardon for those who would just ask him. That's it. 
As, Ex- as Exodus goes back to Exodus 33, it's those who would come back and say, as Moses said, Lord, would you forgive us? We blew it. We're a stiff-necked people. Man, we're ornery. We're ornery. Would you be faithful to your vows, to who you are, and would you once again pardon our sin and do not depart from our life, but go with us? And the Lord says, absolutely. I'd love to do that. So who are the ones that says he will not let the guilt go unpunished? Well, guilt has to go somewhere. has to land on someone. And this is thanks be to Jesus Christ. And the reason that any of us are saved whatsoever, whether we repent or not, the reason we, any of us are saved in the first place is because Jesus Christ took the guilt that we all have upon himself. That Jesus Christ, as, as Moses asked to see the glory of God and said, you can't see the glory of God, the glory of God came down and put on flesh that Jesus Christ is God incarnate with us. That John 1 tells us that we have beheld, we have seen the glory of God, the only Son of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus tells Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know what the Father looks like? You want to know what God looks like? You want to know if God's for you? Look at Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.15 talks about the work of Jesus Christ and who he is. Check out Colossians 1. We'll start in verse 13. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He is the image that we can see and know of the God that Moses is saying, I want to see it, I want to know it. And the clearest picture of who God is, is Jesus Christ crucified. That's the clearest picture of God's forgiveness for us as he lays on the cross, forgiving us of all of our sins, because the guilty cannot go unpunished, and God punished his own son in our place, that who would ever say, Lord, pardon me, forgive me? Oh, he would love to forgive you and pardon you. And those who would say, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. I don't want his love. I don't want his forgiveness. I don't want his mercy. I don't want his grace. I want him out of my life. The Lord would say, I'll leave you alone. And I'll leave you with your guilt. So that's when we get back to Exodus. Do the people of God really repent? And there's this great picture here in Exodus of the repentance of God's people. Where they, where we read it earlier, where they begin to take off their ornaments. The inside, they're, they're broken. Inside, they recognize what they've done. They've missed this mark. And there's an outward expression of this true and real repentance. They take off the jewelry that, that others were using to build idols. A.W. Pink, he's the English Christian theologian who's written volumes on the life of, of Christianity and done many commentaries, speaks about Exodus 33 and that act of taking off their ornaments this way. This is, this is pink. The removal of their ornaments was for the purpose of evidencing the genuineness of their contrition. It's just an outward sign to say, man, Lord, I really know how I've wronged you. And if, if it's possible for you to be slow to anger and loving towards me. Would you do it again? And there's an outward side of what's, what's truly happening inside their hearts. 
they take off their jewelry and they put it in bags and they don't wear it again until they arrive in the promised land. Why are they willing to do that? It's because they do not want to leave the desert place if God's not going with them. Like, why would I want all your stuff if I miss out on being with you? That's the heart of Moses and the heart of the people. As Moses gets ready to lead the people into the promised land in years to come, that's what they're looking forward to is, God, you are the greatest treasure that we can have. We want nothing else. Many generations later, later there's another leader in Israel. This is David, the second king of Israel. This is David and Goliath, David. And David has the establishment of all God's promises. I mean, there's a kingdom and there's a governance and there's a temp. There's going to be a temple with Solomon, his son. They're gathering all the materials for it. The people are worshiping. They're enjoying the land. These enemies are are put out. And so they don't even have to like worry about it at certain seasons. There's peace. And having realized it all. You know what David says? He has a little journal. And I don't know if it was in the morning or the evening, but he pulled out his journal and he wrote a little song. We call them Psalms. And he wrote this in Psalm 27. There's one thing I ask. There's one thing. There's one thing I seek after. That I would dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, now and forever. And that I would be able to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire of him in his temple. You know what he's saying? One thing I ask, having realized the dream that Israel was looking forward to, we got all of his stuff where he promised it. And we've realized that Moses was right. The only thing I want is God himself. That's it. That's the treasure. I want him. I want him in the desert. I don't want to go to the promised land if he's not going there with me. Jesus said, what would it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? The soul is the connection to God. The everlasting connection in relationship with God. I told you all I had was a question today. It's the question I asked. Would you want your promised land if God wasn't going with you? I'll tell you for me, I love the presence of God in my life. To wake up in the morning and know he's there. To go through the seasons of grief and know the sufficiencies of his grace. To go through times of trials and needing wisdom and counsel. And the Lord is so kind to give it. You could not give me the world if God wasn't there. How about you? For me, I need him. Every moment. Every moment, I need him. Let's pray. Lord... I thank you that you are a God that is gracious 
It would not be a good thing to know, that you, to know you in your power if you were not good. Lord, I thank you that you're merciful. Lord, I thank you that you are slow to anger. Lord, I'm so quick to it. Lord, I thank you that you love to forgive anyone who asks you. And so, Lord, would every person in the room know how great you are? Would they come to you? Would they come back to you? Lord, I just pray for every woman and every man in this room that you would enlarge in our vision of who you are so that we would trust you in all the seasons of our life. Lord, may our hearts truly cry out for you every moment and every day as our true treasure with us. Amen.